teacher with three wives. But this Romeo from India wasn't just in it for love. In the end, he would be known for defrauding many women and becoming one of India's most prolific serial killers. This is a story of Cyanide Mohan. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. as well first i'd like to say thank you to everyone who sent that, those fantastic third birthday wishes facebook instagram everywhere and for those that came out to the meetup on saturday thank you so much it's always great to meet the listeners now the special episode i recorded with my great mates tara and ba- barney from bloody murder now that's going to drop next week on the 28th of october and it is a beauty Anyway, tonight's show was aired previously many, many moons ago, but there were a few issues with it, so I thought I'd fix it up and re-record it, as not many people would have listened to it back then, because it did take it down quite quickly, and it is quite an interesting story. This is the story of Mohan Kumar, or as he would become known, Cyanide Mohan. Now, Mohan was born in 1963. He was a resident of Kenyana in Bantwal, Taluk, which is on the western seaboard of southern India. Mohan lost his father in his childhood and his mother said that he was a loving and always caring son, as they do. Mohan was a Dalit, which has a literal meaning of oppressed, but it's used to describe those of the lowest castes in the Hindu caste system, which were considered untouchables. Mohan had divorced his first wife, but after he married his second wife, he then went on to marry his third. When wife number two found out, she argued with him, but eventually relented and they came to some sort of compromise, although I wasn't able to find out exactly what that compromise was. Wife two and three lived about 20 k's or 13 miles apart, one in Apala and the other in Deralakat. Now, I'm going to hopefully get all these words and names as best as I can tonight. Mohan had two boys by his second wife, while the third wife had a daughter and a son. Mohan was employed as a PE teacher from 1980, and by all accounts, he was a normal, hard-working man. His third wife even went on to say, He never harassed me and was a loving husband who shared all his thoughts with me. He never smoked or smoked or drank alcohol. In my wedded life, only once did I see him bring home a bottle of alcohol and drink it, and that was because he was reluctant to drink at a bar. His second wife said he kept accounts of every rupee spent, I know people like that, and noted even daily expenses, and he was a simple man that worried about unnecessary expenses. Hmm. So... That's a bit of background on Mohan. Doesn't seem like the sort of guy that would end up becoming a serial killer. But then again, how many times do you hear that? From what I can find, Mohan was employed 
as a teacher from 1980. Although he started out as a temporary teacher, he would end up becoming permanently employed and was transferred to many different schools right up to 2003 when he quit his job. Now, by quit his job, this may actually be that he was fired after his employers found out about Mohan being charged with attempted murder. It was alleged that he tried to throw a woman off a bridge after she refused to marry him. As we will come to see as the story unfolds, he probably did try to push her over the bridge, but he was acquitted on a he-said-she-said scenario and any lack of real hard evidence. So it looks like Moham has no qualms in harming others and after he loses his job in 2003, he needs a new source of income. He did suffer from TB, tuberculosis, so he was unable to do any hard physical work. What Moham would resort to would shock the country. On June 17, 2009, Anitha, daughter of Kantapa Mugia of Baramakoti Village, failed to come home from a dental appointment. Her parents reported her missing on the 19th. By October, there was still no trace of Anitha, which prompted the residents to mount a protest, claiming the police were not putting in any effort to investigate the case. The protesters claimed that nothing had been done, even though people had come forward with information on potential suspects, and they accused the police of a systematic cover-up. They also complained that over 900 young women had gone missing in various parts of the state in recent times without any resolution in their respective cases. With the protest of 700 residents, the police eventually started to investigate Anitha's disappearance properly. So police looked into calls made on her mobile phone. This would lead them to another young woman who was also missing and from this, the police would find that Mohan Kumar was seen with her shortly before her disappearance. When police went to question Mohan, they found him in possession of some of Anitha's jewellery. Soon, they would find that Anitha was not only missing, but she was dead. 22-year-old Anitha had met Mohan one day while waiting at a bus stop. Over the next few days, Mohan groomed her by offering marriage without her having to pay a dowry. Now, for those that don't know what a dowry is, it is essentially a payment in cash or some kinds of gifts given to the bridegroom's family, along with the bride, and can also include jewellery, electrical appliances, furniture, bedding, crockery, utensils, and other household items that will help the newlyweds set up their home. It's been illegal in India since 1961, but it's still widely practised. It can be a huge financial burden on the bride's family and when someone like Mohan Sweet talks a girl into a dowry-free marriage, girls can be tempted to run away and elope. You have to remember that sex before marriage is frowned upon in Indian society and as a great Indian mate of mine once said, people rush into marriage just to have sex. Now let's get back to what happened to Anitha. Sweet-talking, dowry-free Mohan is working on young Anitha after meeting her at a bus stop. Eventually, he convinces her that it would be better for her to run away with him and get married rather than subject her parents to paying a dowry with some future love interest of hers. So on the 17th of June 2009, Anitha gets dressed up in her best clothes, wears all of her jewellery 
and takes everything of value with her to run away with her husband-to-be, Mohan. Anitha meets Mohan and they go to a temple and partake in a ceremony to become married. She is dressed in an off-white sari with a zari border and tucked in fresh flowers at the top of a neat plait. She wore new gold earrings along with glass bangles and a new pair of shoes. She wanted to look her best for the man she decided to marry. After the ceremony, Mohan and Anitha go to a hotel where they consummate their marriage. The next day, Mohan takes Anitha to the local bus station where he tells her that they're going to his home to start their new life. At the bus station, Mohan asks Anitha to take off all her jewellery and hand over all her valuables for him to keep safe while travelling on the bus. He then produces a capsule from his pocket and tells Anitha that as they had sex the night before, she should go to the ladies' room and swallow the capsule as it's a contraceptive. Anitha takes the pill and goes to the toilets. Next thing, Anitha staggers from the ladies' room, collapses on the ground and Mohan disappears into the crowd. Anitha, without any identification, dies in the street and ends up as what we would call a Jane Doe. Until, of course, Mohan is tracked down by police months later. As police investigate further, they would uncover a trail of dead women lured in by Mohan using the same M.O. over a period of four years. Mohan would hang around bus stations looking for single women. He would list potential targets in a little black book. He would sweet-talk them over a period of time and then tell them that they would struggle to raise a dowry to get married and that he was prepared to marry them without one. If the girl refused, then he would strike them off his list and pick his next target and try again. If he was successful, he would tell the girl to secretly meet him to get to get married and for her to bring all of her valuable items such as gold rings, gold bangles and jewellery. He would then take them to a temple, have the marriage ceremony and then take them to a hotel. Here he would have sex with them and in the next day he would take them to a bus station on the promise of taking them away to his house to start their new life. Once at the bus station, he would take all their valuables while offering them a pill, saying it was a contraceptive. He would tell them to go to the ladies' toilets, have this pill, and once they were out of sight, he'd walk off into the crowd, while the young woman would collapse in agony on the ground and die. Of course, the pill was not a contraceptive, it was in fact cyanide. So police now have Mohan in custody, questioning, questioning him over the disappearance and the death of Anitha. They found that he would not only had been involved with Anitha, but he had at least 12 aliases that he used and had murdered 20 women over four years, including four young women after Anitha was killed. Chandra Gupta, superintendent of police who led the investigation, said, Not being asked for a dowry is a big thing in these parts, and he took advantage of that vulnerability. Many women left their homes with their best clothes and jewellery. One of Mohem's victims, Sunanda Pujari, even took a bank loan of 25,000 rupees before eloping with him. And that at the time was about 400 US dollars. And this is quite a large amount for people on such low incomes. Investigators say they recovered vials of cyanide, fake identity and visiting cards in various names, fake government seals and rubber stamps, 
gold ornaments and mobile phones from his house. In the diary I mentioned before, it proved that he was successful in two out of every 10 young women he targeted. I don't know. (laughs) I don't use Tinder, but I know a lot of people out there do. I don't know what your strike rate is, two out of every 10, but he's, he's doing all right. The rubber stamps and seals he had in his possessions, well, he used those to forge payslips to obtain loans or get women to guarantee for him on those loans. These women would then be left to pay back the loan once Mohan had the money and he'd skip town. Eventually, Mohan had to face court on murder charges. Now, the Indian court system is notoriously slow, but they decided to fast-track his trial. Mohan decided to defend himself in his trial, which commenced in 2011. At Mangalore on December 21, 2013, the 4th Additional District and Sessions Court sentenced serial killer Cyanide Mohan Kumar to death. Mohan was convicted in three of the 20 murder cases he faced. Mohan was sentenced to death for murder apart from imposing a penalty of 5,000 rupees. The court has also sentenced him to five years imprisonment and another fine of 5,000 rupees for kidnapping, eight years imprisonment and 5,000 fine for rape, and three years jail and a fine of 1,000 rupees for administering poison to his victims. We're talking about cyanide here. It was sentenced ultimately, of course, to death. This would later be overturned on appeal to life imprisonment. So how did he get away with killing 20 young women over a period of just four years? Well, first of all, Mohan would insist on strict secrecy with his potential brides, luring them in with the promise of a wedding with no dowry. So that's the way he groomed them. He would only ever be seen with them if they were alone. Once the women were reported missing, police would just assume that they ran away with a lover and wouldn't investigate to any degree, if at all. He was able to meet them, marry them and kill them in a day and then he would move on to a new location. As we've seen in many cases, if police are unable or unwilling to communicate with each other, similar crimes can go unnoticed. There's no pattern detected to show that there may be a serial killer out there. Now, not all the women that encountered Mohan were murdered. Some he just used to get loans, and then he just took off. So how did he get caught? Now, well, we've got to thank Anitha's parents. They didn't put up with the lack of police action on the disappearance of their daughter. Along with friends and other people in the community, they protested the police and forced them into investigating her case. Now, once they checked her mobile phone records, it led them indirectly to Mohan, as he'd used it. He'd used her phone to call another woman who was also reported missing. When they searched his house, they found that he had some of Anitha's gold jewelry. He had four mobile phones and eight cyanide tablets, plus, of course, his little black book with the names of the girls he'd stalked and murdered. Police then had to reopen the cases of these other girls. They'd all been closed with police saying the girls had committed suicide after love had gone wrong. Mohan deposited jewellery and gold loan companies under his own name. All the jewellery was recovered and it was used as evidence against him. I mean, yeah, that's a real fuckity-fuck moment to give his real name when depositing the jury of his murdered brides. I mean, why not just sell it and take the cash? Maybe it could have been a way of him keeping some trophies. 
Anyway, Mohan used several names while checking into lodges, but he always gave the same address. Now, that's another <laughs> what-the-fuck moment, as this linked him to each of the locations. Now, I can't be sure he gave his actual address or a fake one, but handwriting experts were able to confirm Mohan was the author at each of these hotels. Eshwa Bhatt, a priest in Bantwal's Durga Parmashawari, said that Anitha's death did have some impact on Mohan. Just a day after allegedly murdering her, Mohan asked Eshwa if there was a special puja or prayer ritual to wash away the sins of killing a woman. Eshwa said, I was shocked, but I thought he was a bit off and told him to offer Kumkuma Achana, which he did. So, true crime islanders, another scumbag in the can. I don't want to put shit on the Indian law enforcement, but if it wasn't for Anitha's family and community keeping up the pressure on him, Cyanide Mohan probably would have gone on his murderous spree for many, many more years. As it was, he murdered at least 20 young women. Now, that's around one every couple of months or so. I guess it wasn't that long ago that law enforcement in the US, Australia and most other countries tended to treat missing people as probable runaways rather than investigate them as legitimate missing persons. We've always heard that, oh, wait 24 hours, 48 hours, all that sort of bullshit. Anyway, this is very similar to Narut, the pickup truck killer, which I did about a year or so ago. That's a guy from Thailand. Now, the lack of communication between district police forces, it gives these serial killers such an advantage if they decided to move to a new location after each crime. For police forces, communication isn't always easy when your budget may be such that a high-tech computer system with databases full of perpetrators, all their details, that's just unaffordable in some of these countries. But still, a little bit of detective work probably would have put them on the trail of Cyanide Mohan a lot faster and it may have prevented many of the murders. For instance, when Anitha went missing, police failed to do even basic investigating. By the time the family and community protested and they did start to investigate, Mohan had killed four more women. I mean, they tracked him down via mobile phone calls. I was able to get a list of most of his victims' first names and ages, so here they go. Now, I apologise in advance if I, I muck some of these up. Anyway, first one, Baby Nayak, 25, Sharada, 24, Kaveri, 30, Pushpa, 26, Vinutha, 24, Hema, 24, Anitha, 22, Yashoda, 26, Vijay, 26, Sarojini, 27, Shaskakala, 28, Sunanda, 25, Lelavathi, 32, Shantha, 35, Vanitha, 28, and Sujatha, 28. So, Islanders, what do you think of Cyanide Mohan? A bit of a ladies' man. You wonder what was going on in his mind as he killed woman after woman. Did he ever think he would get as far as he did? I mean, maybe after the first couple he thought he'd get caught, like anyone. Maybe he did make a few rookie mistakes. Imagine if he'd planned things just that little bit better. But the last word must go to Anitha's parents for persevering with their missing daughter's case, and that ultimately brought Mohan to justice. 
So that's a really awful case that I thought I'd just bring you in between the last episode and I didn't have one last week because the Bathurst take over the Mustangs and the birthday one, which Barney will edit for me and it'll be ready for next Monday. So Islanders, as I said, next show is the birthday show. And also, I I heard the birthday shout-outs that were organised by Jason Forex, Abercrombie, ta- also Tara and Barney. I will say it did bring a tear to my eye. I'm not going to spoil it, but it'll be worth the listen in next week's episode. Look, I've been rushed off my feet. I will leave the normal shout-outs for, for Patreon and PayPal and all the promos and all that stuff I do at the end until next full episode. Other than a quick cheers to Julie Capel and Lorraine Ledwell for shouting me some PayPal beers for the birthday party. Thank you so much. Okay, so until next time, I'm Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Ireland. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Bye.